We praise you, Lord. Thank you, God, for the opportunity and ability to praise your holy name in song, to lift up our voices, to lift up our hearts, to declare with one voice how great you are. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the majestic one. Your Savior, our life-giving Savior, who has laid his life down so that we might be brought from death to life. And we thank you that we now live this resurrected life alongside our Savior, Jesus. That Jesus, even now, you're sitting at the right hand of the Father, advocating on our behalf. And God, that this life that we live right now is as is, is, is difficult and as challenging as we will ever face over the span of eternity. That it only gets better from here. That we have the hope of eternity with you. And that is what I pray as saints, as your children, we would cling to. To not set our hope on the things of this world, but to set our hope in you. Thank you, God, for the opportunity, even during this holiday season, to be able to take the time to honor and celebrate you, Jesus. God, we love you so much. And we're so grateful not only for the opportunity to come together to praise your holy name, but to know that your Holy Spirit dwells in us. You've chosen, of all the places in the universe you could have gone to and, and made your home, you've chosen to dwell with us, your people. We praise you. We thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. So welcome to Awaken as uh, we're bringing back a series that we first introduced to Awaken about three years ago, a series entitled Hymnology, which is a series where we connect the faith of hymn writers of old, of days long past, to the more modern, woke Christian faith that we have today. And so what we're doing is we're spending three weeks uh, with each of your pastors taking the time to share a hymn that has on a personal level connected, resonated with us, or had some special meaning for us. And last week, Andrew had the chance to take us through Blessed Assurance. And this morning, my goal, my hope is to take us through a hymn that has very special meaning for me, How Great Thou Art. So, uh... Many of you have heard me uh, or had the opportunity to hear me teach and preach for a number of years. So most of you probably know that I became a Christian at 16 years old uh, in the Orlando Chinese Church. Um, and that uh, was uh, quite the experience um, and one that is very meaningful and powerful for me. What you might not know is that I was a part of this church for about a year before I ever made the decision to accept Jesus Christ the Savior. I was slow in that sense. I took my time, and I, I was not about to jump into this whole Christian thing. And one of the ways that uh, the church got us pulled into, and when I say us, I mean more my brother and I, into this relationship with Jesus was that this conservative, head-covering, hymn-singing church decided to invite my younger brother and I, Perry, to join the choir. So 
that was, uh, that was, amazing. That was quite the interesting decision, because not only were we not Christians, we were new to this church, but the girl, the young woman who asked us was the pastor's daughter. Her name was Peggy, and she was this, this beautiful young woman who was just a few years older than we were. And we said no over and over again, uh, because for me, I have no musical talent at all. And so, but she was persistent. And over time, she wore us down, and we decided to get involved with the church choir. And so I ended up spending three and a half years uh, singing bass as part of the Orlando Chinese Church Choir, which again is laughable because I have no musical talent. I can't sing worth a lick, and I could prove that to you right now, but I'll spare you the pain of that. And yet I was invited to join the Chinese Church Choir. And uh, looking back, it was so clever uh, to pull us in to relationship and into community in this way. Uh, my brother and I spent time going to practices, going to rehearsals, and, and singing alongside the choir. We became a part of this community that we had never been a part of before. And um, even though for us we were singing these songs, uh, these hymns that we didn't understand, we thought were being sung in this outdated way of speaking English, it introduced ideas about God to me that I had never considered before. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost and now I'm found, was blind but now I see. I had never considered that I was blind in some way. I had never considered there was something I was missing in my life. I shouldn't say that because I knew something was missing. I never connected it to God. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. Man, I had never thought about God that way before. Which again, if you've grown up in church, maybe unfamiliar, I just never thought, I thought of God as some being out there, not someone who was with me morning and evening, day and night, to be my joy, my comfort, my constant companion. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have wanted, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness. Again, another song that I thought, I never realized this is what God wants, that God will provide for all of my needs. Maybe not all the things I want, but certainly everything that I need. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Whatever happens, whatever pain, whatever struggle, 
whatever difficulty I was going through. In the time, I struggled with depression, anxiety. I was a bit suicidal. There was quite a lot that was going through my mind at the time. And for God to say, it is well with my soul. That is the comfort I want to give to you. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gains I count but loss and pour contempt on all my cross. Jesus died for me. And in order to gain him, I need to surrender everything else that I might be holding on to, especially my cross. Like I said, it was clever. It was brilliant of her, actually, to get my brother and I, before we were ever Christians, involved in this choir. And those songs and those words and the way God spoke to me even then was a large part of why we ended up making the decision to accept Christ. That and the fact that a very intimidating pastor shared the gospel with us, and we didn't feel like we had any other choice to, but to accept Christ. The funny thing about it is I shared earlier, I was part of that choir for three and a half years, and in no time during my time with that choir do we ever see that happen again. There was no one else who was marginally involved in church or non-Christian, never saw anyone else like that ever invited to join the choir. It was just us. It's like as if God knew that's what we needed. And honestly, looking back, I don't know if I would have stuck it out with church had I not felt obligated and connected. So I don't know if it was typical choirs, because that was the only choir I was ever a part of, ever invited to, and ever will be invited to ever again, I believe, if anyone's smart. But, uh, so I don't know if this is typical, but our choir didn't only sing in our church, right? We went out and sang with other organizations sometimes. Uh, we ended up going to nursing homes and singing hymns, and we had kind of a set list of songs that we would sing whenever we would go to different places to sing these hymns, and one that was always a part of the rotation was How Great Thou Art, and it became quickly one of my favorites when you sing in practice and rehearse it over and over again, and then the power of the words as well, talking about just God of creation, God of salvation, and the God of our eternal hope in the different stanzas. It is just so beautiful. And, and not only was it one of the favorite songs or favorite hymns I had the chance to sing, even after I went to college, even after we got part of this college ministry, uh, one of the first, uh, one of the songs that my wife and I ended up performing together at a wedding, I played guitar, I had nothing to do with singing, and that one uh, was How Great Thou Art at one of our friends' weddings. So this is a song that means a lot to me. It holds a very special place in my heart. And especially even today, the way it comes out most in my life is when I go on a prayer walk and I feel like there's a time when I need to reflect on Jesus. It's funny, whenever I go on these prayer walks and I sing very privately to myself, right, um, I, I tend to sing old hymns and I tend to sing uh, scripture songs that I learned while I was in college. These are the types of songs that I tend to sing. And uh, so I just want to go through this song briefly, and then we're going to walk through what we're going to tackle today, right? Oh, Lord, my God. I'm just going to read this to you. When I, in awesome wonder, consider all the world thy hand has made. When I consider the stars, 
and the rolling thunder. God's power throughout the universe displayed. God, his son not sparing, sent him to die. I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, by burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And then someday, when he returns to lead me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Because then I will bow with humble adoration and proclaim my God how great. Thou art. Those, that's, those are the, the lyrics of the song, not the chorus, but the lyrics of the song. And so I, just as we're going to move forward into the rest of what we're going to tackle today, I just want to ask you a question, right? When was the last time you did this? Taking the time to simply contemplate God. To spend time, uh, I know this might not be a great word or has other words associated, but the idea of meditating on God. Like, think with deliberate concentration, right? In contemplation, to just meditate on God for 30 minutes, for an hour, for a few hours, over the course of a few days at a retreat, and just to meditate on the greatness and the wonder of God. When was the last time you did that? To just take a walk and go and look into the sky and to see what God has made. To look around his creation. To see all the creativity that he has exercised and just meditated on God. If you haven't, if it's been a while, then we're going to tackle a little bit of that today. So here's what I want you to do. Anything that you might be taking notes on. I know that's like only a third in this church. But if you're taking notes or whatever, your pen, I want you to just put it down. If you've got your Bible or your device, however it is you read your Bible, I want you to actually put it down. I want your hands free. Okay? So take time. Put it down. These are two things you probably never hear at church, right? Put down pen and paper. Don't take any notes. And put down your Bible because we're not going to be reading from it right now, right, during this time. Uh, for those of you who just need to know what's going on, or what, we're going to be going through Psalm 104. So I'll put it up here, but if you want to meditate or come back to it later, that's all we're doing. We're going through Psalm 104 today, and we're going to be taking the time to contemplate through this psalm, God. Okay? So, with your minds clear and your hands clear for the next 15 minutes or so, I want to begin by reading Psalm 104 to you and taking the time just to, to, uh, to open it up, to unwrap it just a little bit about, uh, and we're meditating on the greatness of God. And before we dive in, I just want to be clear, when we think about greatness in someone, right, it's always revolves around two things. When we talk about the greatness of a person, the greatness of a being, it's always wrapped around the greatness of who they are and the greatness of what they do or what they have done. That's what we associate with greatness, who they are and what they have done. And that's what Psalm 104 does in um, proclaiming the greatness of God. So let's begin in verse 1. Let all that I am praise the Lord. O Lord my God, how great you are. You are robed with honor and majesty. You are dressed in a robe of light. You stretch out the starry curtain of the heavens. 
you lay out the rafters of your home in the rain cloud. You make the clouds your chariot. You ride upon the wings of the wind. The winds are your messengers. Flame of fire are your servants. So I want you to imagine and picture in your head God is being so great that he cannot even be clothed by anything that we can make, cotton or silk or any rich cloth at all. Instead, God is dressed in integrity, and he is robed, he is clothed in a robe of light. God's home is not made with wood or steel. God's home, the walls, are stars. Stars are on the wall, and the roof of God's home are the clouds. He doesn't travel in a car, he doesn't travel in a train or a plane, but rides upon the wind, and fire is his servant. You realize that there are uh, the planets, I was going to say eight, nine planets in our solar system, right? Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, maybe, you know? You understand and we realize that that's, that's our solar system, and we think that we understand our solar system pretty well, but you realize none of us have ever been to another planet, right? Which is, which is crazy because actually if you want to take it beyond that, there's like billions of people on Earth who have never even been out of their own country, much less off the planet. And yet we think that we know so much. And then so when you take, go beyond our solar system and go into our galaxy, do you know how many other worlds are in our galaxy? 200 to 400 billion in the Milky Way galaxy. And that's just our galaxy. If you go beyond and many galaxies beyond, we're talking about billions upon billions upon billions of worlds. We are so, so small. And God is so great. Verse 5, you place the world on its foundation so it would never be moved. You clothe the earth with floods of water, water that covered even the mountains. At your command, the water fled. At the sound of thunder, it hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the levels you decreed. God placed the earth on a foundation that is perfect for sustaining life. Scientifically, the earth is hung at an angle of 23.5 degrees, which is what is necessary in order to sustain life. Because if it was tilted any further, then life would not be possible at the poles because it would just be too cold and there would be no seasons at all. It's also set at the perfect distance from the sun in order to sustain life. God set the world on a perfect foundation. And scientists have no explanation for it. Their best explanation is the world was tilted a different way and some planet collided with Earth to cause it to be tilted at just the perfect angle necessary to sustain life. And yeah, we all believe that theory. Verse 9. Then you set a firm boundary for the seas so they would never again cover the earth. You make springs pour water into the ravines so streams gush down from the mountains. They provide water for all the animals and the wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds nest beside the streams and sing among the branches of the trees. You send rain on the mountains from your heavenly home and you fill the earth with the fruit 
of your labor. Water is one of the biggest reasons why life on earth exists. And God is the one who has given us water. And not only has God given us water and filled the earth with water, he's also the one that has separated water from dry land so that there's life to live upon that dry land. You know, it's really interesting how when you look at science, again, I'm not trying to disparage science. Science is tremendous value, and I, I admire the people who dedicate themselves to understanding our world better. What is remarkable is the more scientists study about the world, the way it's designed in the universe, the more it comes in line with what God has said rather than the less. So one of the, the questions that came up in the past that scientists wrestle with is how did water end up on earth? Was it always here or was it brought here? And their conclusion for many, many years has been that water was brought to earth, not inherently part of earth. That earth in its long distant past was just molten, like covered in lava and rock. And the theory was that an asteroid or a comet struck the earth and in striking the earth brought water to the planet. Well, recently in 2016, so was that three years ago, there was a, uh, a journal that came, I'm sorry, a, uh, an article or, or a study that came out in the journal, it was Nature Magazine, and said that they debunked that theory, that it wasn't possible because the, the, any molecules that might have resembled water on comets that they studied has nothing to do, doesn't match at all what is on Earth. And so the conclusion today is that, well, water was always a part of the Earth, and it was probably buried deep in the earth and somehow brought out to cover the earth. So I was like, cool. That's really remarkable how, again, science bends towards what God has already declared in his word has happened. God causes the water to flow as it does and to fill the spaces that it does, which is a good thing because there would be no life on earth without water. The psalmist continues, verse 14, you cause grass to grow for the livestock, and plants for people to use. You allow them to produce food from the earth, wine to make them glad, olive oil to soothe their skin, and bread to give them strength. The trees of the Lord are well cared for. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted, there the birds make their nests, and the storks make their home in the cypresses. So on the foundation of a world that is perfectly tilted at a perfect distance from the sun in order to sustain life, having water covering the planet that is necessary in order for life to be sustained, God has given us grass for the cattle. He has given us trees that bear fruit. He's given us plants that can be used in such a wide variety of ways. And this psalm actually shares some of that, right? Olive oil it comes from a tree, bread that comes from grain, and so on and so forth. And what is fascinating is that God not only gives us grass and fruit from the tree and plants that can be produced into a whole wide variety of different types of foods, but he's given us such diversity. In other words, God has not simply put these things on earth in order to feed us, but he's like, I want you to enjoy eating as well. So I'm going to give you a wide variety, a wide variety of foods, a wide variety of spices, so you can experience a bunch of different tastes and textures. All of this given for you to enjoy. Great is the Lord who supplies food for every living creature. Verse 19, you made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows where to set. 
You send the darkness and it becomes night when all the forest animals prowl about. Then the young lions roar for their prey, stalking the food provided by God. At dawn, they slink back into their dens to rest. Then people go off to their work where they labor until evening. God made the moon and God has given us the sun. God has put the earth again on a rotation so there is both night and day. On that rotation, there are also seasons where there is, so God has given us a healthy balance of times of work, times of rest, times of cold, times of warmth, times of growth, energy, and even the tides are impacted by the way God has designed and set the earth. Verse 24, O Lord, what a variety of things you have made. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. They all depend on you to give them food as they need it. And when you supply it, they gather it. You open your hand to feed them, and they are richly satisfied. But if you turn away from them, they panic. And when you take away their breath, they die and turn again to dust. There is a cycle, life. And death. And of course, God has created mankind, and this is true for us, right? He's created each and every one of us, cell by cell. The Bible tells us that even in our mother's womb, He has stitched us together piece by piece. He has known us before we were ever made, He imagined us before we were ever created. So, can we talk just a little bit about the human body? I'm not a, uh, you know, I'm a counselor, not. A doctor, my dad is one. I had to listen to him my entire life. Maybe that kind of counts, right? And uh, but I just want to tell you a bit about the remarkableness of the human body. And we'll start with skin. Right? Skin covers the outside of the human body. Taken together, do you know how much our skin weighs on the average adult? It's nine pounds. Nine pounds of skin that most adults carry around with us. And, uh, and it's amazing because the way skin is designed is it's designed to stretch. It's designed to go around every curve and every bend of our body. It knows as well the skin where it should be thick, like at the bottom of your heel, and where it needs to be thin, like in your eyelids, right over your eyes. Your skin keeps out water. It keeps out infection but lets air in. And it has places where it's rough, like around your elbows where it needs to be a bit rough, and then other places where it's like baby smooth, like, you know, somewhere <laughs> on your body, right? It is not easy to tear that skin, but when it does, when your skin is torn, it puts itself back together again. It's amazing. There is nothing that the most brilliant minds on the planet can create that has anything close to the properties of skin, in fact, the best explanation that scientists can come up with with how skin came to be is that's right, random chance and evolution over time. And it's like, wow, really? That's the best that we can do. Again, not slamming scientists necessarily. We're just saying, I just want to contrast the best the world has to offer regarding truth versus what God says. And that's just a crazy idea. The intricacies of how skin is made and, and uh, fulfills its function has to be the result of intelligence and not the result or product of random chance. And then there's what's under the skin. Underneath the skin, especially close to the top of the skin, there are arteries, there are veins, and rivers of blood, rivers of life. The, the Bible talks about how blood is life in the human body. These arteries, some are, are bigger, so easily visible. Others can barely be seen 
by the human eye. And yet, with all of these arteries, they have small muscles that contract in rhythm in order to move blood and circulate blood throughout the body. They open and then they close at just the right time to provide what the body needs. So when your body is hot, the arteries under the skin open so that air can get into the blood and cool you off. And when the body is cold, what arteries do is they shut off when they're near the surface in order to keep your blood warm. But that's why your appendages, like your fingers, can end up feeling a bit cold. It's remarkable. It's not It's like, how do they know? They know. They carry food and oxygen to your organs. If you're bleeding, somehow these arteries know when to just close down to prevent further loss of blood. And then how about your bones? There's nothing that has ever been created that is as well-suited for supporting the body as bone. Bone composes 20% of your total body weight and forms the lightest structure with the least material that possesses the considerable strength necessary to support your body. So as a point of comparison, if you were to use wood and replace the bones in your body with wood, wood would not be able to handle the pulling tension that is necessary for bone to sustain. And it also can't stand the compression, so it can't stand the pull and crushing action that your bones have to take on a daily basis. It would just shatter. Steel could... Steel could withstand both, but steel weighs three times as much as bone does, so you would be feeling very heavy and have to carry all that weight around. You think you're overweight now. Just kidding. That was... (laughs) Plus, bone has a structure that has a hollowness to it that allows this efficient red blood cell factory to churn out a trillion, that's a T, trillion new cells per day. Bone is elastic enough to give a bit, so that's how um, babies can be born, right? Bone can flex a bit. As a matter of fact, the bones that you have at two years old, they will all be replaced by three years old. So that means bone not only flexes and bends when needs to, it's firm when it needs to, but it also grows, right? Um, and it can repair itself as needed. It lubricates itself as needed as well. Is there any material that mankind could possibly invent that can do all of that. And then can we talk about, last thing, white blood cells? Because I think white blood cells are really cool. White blood cells are like the military uh, defense force in your body. And so white blood cells, when there is an invading bacteria or virus that attacks your body, these white blood cells attack them. We have 50 billion of them in our body and about 100 times as much Uh, in our bones as reserves. So, like, that's a huge reserve. If there's an invader attacking or damaging the body, the white blood cells arrive, they surround that bacteria, and then they release, get this, tiny chemical explosives to destroy that invader and oftentimes destroys the blood vessel, the white blood cells themselves. It's like a kamikaze action, right? But here's the cool part. Not only do they release these explosives to destroy the bacteria or whatever it is invading, but there's the observers around. They're not just doing anything, right? If they're not on this kamikaze mission, they're recording the details of this bacteria. And then afterwards, they specifically design certain white blood cells with the, uh, they're specifically designed to destroy that specific bacteria should it ever enter the body again. So you got the white blood cells, you got these specially designed cells, and they just kind of roam around in the bloodstream 
just in case that bacteria, that specific type of bacteria, chooses to attack your body again. That is amazing. That's incredible. And this is just a small taste of all the different ways the intricacies of our body are designed. There is intelligence behind this, brilliant intelligence that thinks about things that we would never even think about. And God has put all of this together, designed and and put together and stitched every part of it together in you. It's crazy. And again, not to slam science or anything else, science has such tremendous benefits to our study, and there's such amazing people who dedicate themselves to studying and to research. But if you take the underlining premise of what God says and what science says is that Things are a product of chance that just come together randomly, or there is some design, but it's not necessarily all-powerful, all-knowing design, maybe an alien life force design. It's just insane to imagine that over the much more reasonable understanding of with behind every design, there's intelligence. That's just the way the world works. And great design reflects great intelligence. And the greatest design of not only our bodies and this world, but the universe is a reflection of how great God is. This is what the scriptures teach us, right? That God has given us his creation so that we might know that he is there, that he must be there. Whether you choose to believe or not is your decision, but you cannot deny that he is real. Verse 30, when you give them breath, life is created. And you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord continue forever. The Lord takes pleasure in all he has made. The earth trembles at his glance. The mountains smoke at his touch. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will praise my God to my last breath. May all my thoughts be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Here's how this psalmist is wrapping up. He's saying, in light of this truth, how are we to respond? One of the ways we respond is we sing. We praise the God who has made us and who has freely given us all these things. In 1885, Carl Gustav Boberg was a young Swedish pastor, and he was on his way home one day when he was caught in this severe thunderstorm, and it was so severe, and he was caught off guard out in the open, he almost died. And then directly after the storm took place, uh, the sun came out, and the sun came out and shone upon the bay that he was walking alongside, and he saw the beauty of that, and then started to hear the birds coming out and start chirping. And it was this contrast of violent, wild storm, and then the beautiful aftermath that caused him to go home and to write a poem about the greatness of God. And he wrote this poem and titled it, O Storegut, which means, O Mighty God, and then submitted it to the local newspaper. And that was the end of it, or so he thought. Well, a couple of years later, uh, Pastor Bobek ended up being at this conference this Christian conference, and he heard people singing uh, this old Swedish folk tune, but they had changed the words somehow. They put different words to that 
folk tune. And he realized, to his surprise, that the words that were putting to this folk tune were the words of his poem. And that is how this song became a hymn. And it became popular in Sweden and throughout parts of northern uh, Europe until it made its way to Germany. And in Germany, a Christian named Manfred von Glenn was compiling songs to put in his hymn book when he came across this hymn, which he loved so much that he translated it to German, where he called it Du Grosser Gut. Du Grosser Gut. From there, the hymn made its way to Russia. I did take German, by the way, for three years, so not just making this stuff up. But anyway, from the hymn, from there, the hymn made its way to Russia in 1927. So the communist revolution is just getting started at this time. And a Russian Baptist named Ivan Prochinov was busy starting new churches, starting new Bible schools, and starting new seminaries. And he was, at the time, the most prolific hymn writer and translator in all of Russia. Well, guess what that meant for his life on the onset of the communist movement? That's right. It meant he was arrested and exiled multiple times. But whenever he had the opportunity, he continued to put together this hymn book. And the American Bible Society decided to come alongside Prochenev and publish his hymn book, even though Prochenev himself was jailed, exiled, and then died. Which leads us to the early 1930s, and there's a British missionary couple. They were Stuart and Edith Hine. They were traveling through the mountains of Ukraine and Romania and Poland when doing mission work when they heard about this Russian hymn. And they decided they started to, to learn it as part of the way of connecting with the culture around them and started to sing it as part of their ministry. But unfortunately, they were forced to return to Great Britain before they felt like their ministry was complete. And they were brokenhearted in England, thinking, God, you've called us to reach the nations. We were out there, and yet now we're forced to be back in our homeland. What is going on? And then in 1939, something remarkable happened. You guys know what happened in 1939? World War II began. And so when World War II began, there were refugees coming from all these different countries in northern Europe, running to, fleeing to, you guessed it, to England. And they realized that we are here not to go to the nations, but the nations are coming to us. And because of their experience, they were at the forefront of ministering to those refugees, sharing the gospel with them, and Based on what he had seen, he, uh, Stuart Hine ended up writing the final uh, verse to how, and then of course translated and wrote the final verse on his own to how great thou art. And that gives us the song that we sing today. And then in 1955, the Billy Graham crusade, uh, for those of you who are old enough to remember, we were actually part of one that was really cool. Uh, the Billy Graham Crusades, if you don't know, is Billy Graham was a, an evangelist. He had this team, and they traveled across the world to share the gospel in these crusades. And they would literally be bringing thousands upon thousands and even hundreds of thousands of people together to share the gospel during these crusades. So in 1955, they added this song to their rotation. In 1957, they had a crusade in New York in Madison Square Garden. So it was this huge crusade over the course of about three or four days and during that time they sang how great thou art and it was so impactful and the people would keep singing it over and over again that they 
played that song, they performed that song, How Great Thou Art, a hundred times during that crusade. And watching it just change and transform lives. And of course, it's not the song that changed lives, but God working through. This hymn has literally traveled across the world in order to reach us here today. And the greatness of God has been proclaimed uh, throughout country by country, right? Generation over generation, in times of war and in times of peace. To declare in every generation, O Lord my God, how great thou art. Amen? Can we say that together? O God, how great thou art. Again, O God, how great thou art. Again, O God, how great thou art. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity this morning not to teach a standard sermon, lesson, three points, three ideas, but just to take the time to meditate and ponder your greatness, O God. To be able to just set aside the things that we concern ourselves uh, during the course of a regular day, our aches and our pains, our burdens, our school, our exams, our work, and wrapping things up before the holidays, family coming to visit, all of the crazy things that tend to fill our minds during this time of the year and to set them all aside to simply meditate upon, to contemplate consciously you and the greatness of who you are and what you have done and what you are continuing to do even today. Oh, Lord, you are great by any and every definition of that word. As a matter of fact, great is not big enough a word to describe how amazing you are. And we thank you, Lord, that we can come before you with incomplete words, with incomplete ideas, with, with uh, just the littleness of who we are, and yet somehow we can come together in our worship and in our praise and please the God of all creation. Just find it amazing. And we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to stand, to sit, to bow in your presence, O Lord, our God. And I pray that we would continue to do so. That throughout the coming day, the coming week, the coming month, the coming life, Lord, that we would not, that we would consistently and faithfully take the time to meditate upon how great you are. And it's not like you've made it hard. You've given us so many different ways that so many different aspects of creation and your word and that, that reveals the greatness of you. And God, we just have to pay attention. We live in a world where it seems so difficult because of special effects to to come to a place of awe and wonder and reverence. And yet, I pray that we would never lose that in your presence, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We praise you for you've given us everything we have and you have given us everything. You've made us into everything that we are. And we give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.